Hi, my name is Chris Smith and this is Uncommon. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media. Play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON. Welcome to another episode of UNCOMMON. My name's Jordan Michaelides and I'm your host. In this episode, I have for you Chris Smith. Chris is the founder and director of Big Esports and co-founder of Shade Crew, an influencer gaming group. Chris is highly involved in the esports space, sitting on the board of the Esports Game Association of Australia. He's regularly speaking, mentoring and consulting in the industry. And I came across his work while researching for Jerry Sackis's interview, who is also a partner in Big Esports. And I was just genuinely intrigued by this world of both esports and gaming. So hence, as a leader in the space, I couldn't help but want to pick Chris's brain. In this episode, we covered a lot, including losing reaction time with age and how that affects your esports gaming career. Air Force Cadets, esports versus gaming, the status of Shade Crew, big esports and the podcast, and of course, uh, good old Benjamin Franklin, the Benjamin Franklin effect. If you like the episode, do leave us a rating on your podcast app, or maybe share with your friends, take a screenshot, post on your Instagram story, and tag us at uncommon underscore podcast. To watch the episode in full, search Uncommon Podcasts on YouTube and don't forget to like and subscribe. Show notes and all previous guests can be found at neural.com slash podcasts. With that being said, thanks for listening, our regulars for coming back, our newbies for giving us a shot. I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Chris Smith. Chris, we're live. Hi. Awesome. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good, good. bit cold, but good. Yeah, it's... it's um. It's been very, very cold weather. I think you say, I actually noticed in the last week or so, we've had two absolute bucketing uh, sort of downpours, uh, which is unusual for winter here in Melbourne. Like normally it's sort of that spitty regular stuff. It's not like a sort of springtime thunderstorm. But last night in the city, you could not see a single thing past like maybe five five meters in front of our house at all. Yeah. now, Jerry's gave him, given me some zingers. I'm just going to do this as a true or false. All right. Um, and I'm not going to do too, too many of them, but <laughs> is it true or false that as a former pro Counter-Strike player, you got demolished by a bunch of newbie kids at Playside? False. <laughs> That's a false. Yeah. It depends what you denote as, as uh, demolished, yeah. I think, would be the answer. What, what do you think he's trying to say? Is he just trying to give you the razz? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we talked a little bit off camera about this too. You know, I used to be a semi-pro Counter-Strike player and now it's it's kind of like the old adage of a boxing coach where you used to be a world pro, <laughs> you used to be able to knock people out and be really fit, but now you're older, your senses have gone a bit, you're not as fit as you used to be. So I can see how bad I am now 
and my brain is telling me to play better, but unfortunately, my body just can't keep up with my expectations. So. Yeah, it's sort of like um, you're like Sylvester Stallone, and then you Rocky movies. You're at the coaching level stage yes. now. You just you're too slow. Yeah, <laughs> and it's weird because you get moments of brilliance yeah. in in Counter Strike uh, when you haven't played competitively online for a while. Like I think I took a three year break or something like that. Really, you um, decay in rank. So I decayed from the second highest rank in the game to like the third lowest. Oh, jeez. And what you notice, what I've noticed is that I get fleeting moments of brilliance. So I'll be terrible for three or four rounds and then the instincts will kick in and I'll do like a one versus four with only a pistol and I'll defuse the bomb and everyone will start calling you a cheater. <laughs> and you go, I'm sorry, guys. I don't, A, I don't want to be in this rank, but I'm bad enough now to be here. I've decayed to be here. And yeah. B, I, I can't control my fleeting moments of brilliance. <laughs> do you? That's, that's quite funny. It sort of makes me think about like... um. You know, like with the EJ Witten's game, how you sort of see the um, the older players and they're still knocking about, but there are those fleeting moments of brilliance. Yeah. And it had me thinking, like, is there, a, you know, like we, we always say when players in AFL, they get to 32, 34, oh, like he's going to be re- retiring soon. Mm. Is it the same in esports or do you have people that go for, for decades yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty similar. I mean, esports hasn't been around long enough for someone to go from 16 to 50, for example, playing. But, you know, a good friend of mine used to play Counter-Strike 1.6 at the top level for a team called Fnatic that was dominant for quite a few years in Counter-Strike. And he thinks that about 30 is the wall when you have to move into a, a coaching or an in-game leader type role where you're calling the shots and you're not actually doing the main fragging or the main killing in the game. Why, you, why is that? Because he, that's his theory is that that's when you start to lose your reaction times and you start uh. to lose being as effective. So generally in the game, the in-game leader, they're job might be to die to gain information Um, and then you can do in there what's called trading so if I run into a site purposefully to die and to see the person running after me their job is to kill that person that killed me which is a trade a kill for a kill and Uh now it's a four versus four and you can keep progressing such as that so I mean that's his theory I haven't seen any research on it I'd love to see some research but I don't think that esports has been around for long enough really for some you know solid research to be conducted. Just the way that you speak about it then, you can really tell how seriously people take this stuff. Um, I've watched a few tournaments with my brother. Um, Just watching stuff on YouTube, it's always fun to watch. And um, I I think we'll get get into the state of the industry in a moment. I want to talk about you and your own career early on. Mm. Um, Out of interest, what do you think you were going to be when you were a kid? When I was a kid? Kind of flipped and flopped around for a while. There was a I was in Air Force Cadets for six years. Really? Um, which anyone listening, if you have kids, would highly recommend. It turned me from literally from a scared mummy's boy into someone who could be a leader over mm-hmm. that period of time. You know, I remember crying at my first camp going away because I didn't want to be away from my parents. I'm an only child. You know, we moved into state quite a lot and quite close with my parents. But I was able to do multiple promotion courses, which are kind of a dulled down version to what you might see in movies where you're waking up at 5am every day polishing your you've got a certain way you're supposed to fold your underpants you're doing tests over the period of time both physical and in regards to drill and and mental and things like that so for me I was on a track to go into the air force and primarily probably to be a pilot over a long period of time okay um did you have an idea as to what type of pilot you want to be for it's for me it's limiting due to my height 
because okay. I'm about 6'2", six 6'3", six and um, they measure you from your waist up. If you're going to get ejected from an aircraft, there's kind of things that punch through the cockpit. And if you're uh-huh. taller than those, you probably don't want your neck to be punching through the, the top of the cockpit instead of the um, or your helmet instead of the barriers. So oh, really? f- for me, it was probably like a transport uh, type, like a C-130 Hercules or something like that, or, or a helicopter pilot. Okay, so the the fighter pilots have to essentially be... Uh, a below average, uh, below average, or just a short, you know, like a five ten, five eight. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the measurements are off the top of my head, but it's it's literally measured from your hip to your head when you're sitting down. And I think for me, um, at that stage, I was about right on the limit, or slightly under. I had one of my friends who was set on being a pilot, fighter pilot his whole life, but he was like six six. He's just simply too tall. Wow. Where I've got others, you know, I've got a one of my friends is a fighter pilot, and yeah, he's about five nine. Yeah, five ten maybe something like that. Mm. How yeah. many how many fighter pilots do you think there are in Australia? We don't have a massive fleet of F eighteens or F thirty five. No, I don't so. think we have many. A few of my friends did gun full fighter pilots and ended up being transport or you know going to helicopters or, or you know private commercial and things like that too. But yeah. there can't there can't be many. There's got to be like what fifty. I reckon max. I mean, like, let's say there's like thirty forty craft. You've at least got um, in some of those two per craft, and then you'd have like a backup. Mm. Round, so probably more like 150. Yeah, something, something like that. I remember, um, actually, in the days when you used to go to like career, we did cadets at school, mm. but we did like army cadets. Yeah, I fucking hated it. I mean, but it was really good for like drilling stuff into you. But I already sort of went to one of those schools anyway. And very, and very different too. The cadets I did very was out of school, and understanding that, talking to people that did cadets in school, they're nothing alike whatsoever. It's nothing alike. It's just yeah. to fill in time, basically yeah. for for teachers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> I, I remember I was I was really interested in joining probably the, the Navy or the Air Force Academy because you could get a free education. Yes. Um, yep. And also Same. be getting a – like you get, got paid. Like I think if you were in the Air Force, the starting wage was like $40,000 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I remember just counting the numbers and thinking like, I get paid to eat, I get paid to train, I get paid all these things. And then mm. uh, it was literally like I, I met my partner and sort of that idea just sort of fell out because I was just yeah. like, well, I don't really care about that now. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's funny how amazing that deal is. Yeah, I've got, a, take it up. I've got a few friends that went through exactly the same as what you said. You know, one of them got a 99.9 ATAR you know, was set to become a, a pilot and go to ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy. But, yeah, part, but a partnership with a girl, yeah, kind of threw that to the side. <laughs> yeah. But it's always hard when you're that age too, right? They're not together anymore. So, oh, right, but yeah. You can't necessarily explain that to a 17-year-old you, you at, all. at the time. And there was another guy I did cadets with as well, actually, who rose through the ranks to, to be the highest rank, which is what I did as well. He was a few years before me, but he was the same. He got a 99.8, but, yeah, relationship stopped him from heading off okay. yeah, to go there now too. ADFA, is that – that's not Duntroon, is it? No, so Duntroon is, is the, the army is the army base. I yeah. stayed there once when I was in cadets where ADFA is the Australian Defence Force Academy. So it's where – it's the university where you go and get paid to, to study oh, over okay. a period of time. So you come out with a real-world degree. I've got a friend who did that and, and she's come out with an information security degree. Really? Um, and then – 
you have to serve a certain amount of years in the military to kind of pay that back as well. So they pay you a they pay you a, a salary or a wage while you're studying, but then depending on how in depth your degree is, if you become a pilot, it's millions of dollars to train you. So you've got to be contractually in the air force for ten years to kind of pay back that time it's taken to train you. That's right. Yeah, and that was one of the the things that I was looking at. It's like how many years do I have to do do this thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's and Adford. Do you think that's up in Canberra? It is. Sort of rings a bell. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so you you didn't end up going into the air force. You Correct. studied, I think, psychology and IIT. Yeah. Um, how did you like get into this gaming stuff? Or maybe I should ask you, what were the sort of the games that you grew up on before World of Warcraft as yeah. your first game? What what were the games that you grew up on? Yeah, I think everyone's done their time in World of Warcraft, <laughs> me included. For me, I started off with strategy games. I remember, have have some very basic memories of me being four years old um, in kindergarten playing Warcraft 2 on my dad's 486 okay. and also Formula 1 and Prince of Persia. Dad's a real keen, build, like hands-on builder guy, so he used to build all his own model aircraft and such. So he built really? a, a steering wheel and pedals for Formula 1 that would plug in so you could actually have... Yeah, you, you could have that kind of controls. And that's before those things really wow. existed. You couldn't really purchase them, even from a store. Wow. So I played that quite a lot. And a lot of strategy games because of my dad over that period of time. You know, Warcraft 2 to Warcraft 3, Red Alert 2, um, Command & Conquer, Tiberian Sun was the first game I ever bought with my own money. It cost me 10 bucks from Harvey Norman in the clearance bin, I think, mm-hmm. when I was a lot younger. But it wasn't until probably 2005 until I played really any first-person shooter games whatsoever. And that was Battlefield 2, which I started playing after kind of my World of Warcraft addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> that's where I started to understand that you didn't have to be in a game for a long period of time to get some satisfaction out of it. In a World of Warcraft, if you want to do a dungeon, you've got to do an hour and a half, what they call it an instance, yeah. where Battlefield, I could jump in, have a good time, 20, 30 minutes, get out, yep. go and do something else. Interesting. So you started to realize that, um, you know, with these sorts of first player shooter games, that the the friction in playing was going down and down mm. in particular. And I think you can more easily see a marked difference in skill in a first person shooter okay. than you can in a player versus environment experience like in World of Warcraft, what they call PVE. Because yeah. In World of Warcraft, you're grinding to get limited item drops, to get better gear, to battle against you know monsters in dungeons. Whereas if you and I are playing in a Counter-Strike match, it's usually very obvious if one person's a lot better than someone else. Mm. And it comes less down to just knowledge of the way that the game works to knowledge of actually how to control yourself and how to control the interface, which is the game. Mm. So I could know the spray patterns of every single gun, which I still do in my mind. Like if you hold left click with an AK-47 in Counter-Strike, it it does kind of like a seven, like it goes up and then left and then right. So you can have that knowledge. You can know that an AK-47 will kill with one bullet to the head no matter what, whereas an M4 will take two shots to the head if they've got head armor, etc. There's so much of that knowledge. But ultimately that doesn't matter if you've got so much better reflexes than me that when I walk around a corner, you shoot me and I'm dead straight away. Yeah. So it's, it's, I don't want to say it's like chess boxing, but you know that old <laughs> thing of you've got to think and you've got to be able to be physical at the same time. Yeah. I really like that aspect of it. There's those two things where you can have immense game knowledge and that's what my team had. We were quite new, but we were top four, top six in Australia. We had absolutely intense game knowledge and that was able to carry us more than the raw aim and the individual skill. We are able to play much better as a team and had much more strategy and would study the game much more, mm. which was able to elevate us at, to a certain level 
level while we were working on an individual skill to hopefully get us to number one. So, yeah, because you played quite a few games, obviously, as you said. I mean, how, and you were playing at a semi-pro level as well. That was one thing I noticed on your yeah. profile. When, like, how early on did you realize, one, you, like, because I can sort of see at some point you've gone, well, I could actually do this professionally and I'm going to go for it. And then at some point you've also realized it's probably past me now and I'm going to utilize the skills which I currently have, which has sort of gotten you to where you are now. Mm. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about that, like your pro gaming stage versus getting into community management and and communicating what the industry is about. Yeah, sure. So I think... Um you know, during that period of time, there's, there's, there was kind of a renaissance period of esports, to phrase this. So back before the GFC, esports okay. was gaining a lot of traction and becoming quite big. So there were tournaments like the Championship Gaming Series, which was in partnership with some pay TV channels. And they were eight teams around the world playing Counter-Strike Source. They were contracted. There was a Sydney team called Sydney Underground. There was an, a London team called London... Uh, London Mint, I think it was. There was an LA team, et cetera, et cetera, all playing against each other in a studio live every single week. Mm-hmm. The players were on salaries. It was televised. There was professional commentators. It was in stadiums, et cetera. The GFC and then also their poor spending helped kind of kill that off. Similar with other games like Quake and such, there were $100,000 first place prize tournaments previously. And then esports took a dive with the GFC because primarily esports is advertising and and in an unproven market, especially in esports, the first thing to get cut is advertising where yeah. everyone focused on making revenue. And then it started to come back up again. So for me, you know, I spent a lot of time playing Battlefield 2 and, and Bad Company 2 for a long time, which was a massive passion of mine. And I've never liked a game more than Battlefield 2. However, that was simply not an esport and it wasn't a possibility for it to be a global esport. So for me, I made the switch to Counter-Strike too late, far too late to be a professional at that time. Hmm. And then as the new game came out, CSGO, it evens the playing field a little bit. So even though it's very similar to Counter-Strike Source and 1.6 that were before it, there's still nuances and differences in it that if you come in with that new game being released, you've instantly leveled the playing field a little bit more and things are a bit closer. Whereas if you tried to if you tried to go into CS 1.6 in 2006 or thereabouts, if you tried to start that then, you wouldn't have had a chance. People had 10, 15 years runway on top of you of, of practicing the game, learning about it every day. Mm-hmm. And, and Battlefield, why do you think it was not as well suited? Was it that element of randomness that we were talking about before we got on camera? Yeah, a couple of points. Battlefield originally is really meant to be a 16 versus 16 game, which is just too many people. You know, I remember trying to organise our team to play in matches and if you've got 16 and in that stage teams weren't professional, so you'd probably have 50 people that are in your clan in total. And just trying to organise a 16 v 16 was a massive headache in itself. Jeez. Let alone the logistics, if you think about a tournament, having 16 PCs on stage versus 16 on stage is huge, flying all those people there who's going to fund, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in comparison with CSGO... At a pro level, I think it's, what, six people per team or something? 5v5. 5v5. Yeah, yeah. Okay. which is one of the standards, really one of the staples in esports is 5v5. And if you think about it, if one team is 16, that's three 5v5 opportunities. Jeez. You know, within CSGO, that's three different stories of teams, you can say. That's three different, you know, backgrounds of teams and such as well. Or even if you own teams, it's three different chances to win versus one chance if you've got 16 players that are playing on stage. Hmm. And so... How early did you, because you were there working for Corsair for a while, you're doing a lot of um, editorial work as well in the Mm. tech space. Um, And just 
all round, it seems like you noticed that you had this sort of ability to communicate. I, I found like a, a really old talk of yours. It m- would have been from like 2011, 12. I think it was actually when you were at, um, was it Thermal Take and yeah. TT Esports? Yeah. It was really interesting to, to look at that now in hindsight and see where the industry's gone. Mm. Um, where, why sort of move into that area? You know, like how did you realize you had that competency? For, for me, it was an accident. So essentially, I was I was a commentator for Netgame Radio, which is online radio station. That's right. So through that, um, I guess that's where it kind of kicked off the entrepreneurial vibe. So I started trying to take more ownership and more responsibility within an organization, tried to help them okay. branch into new games, do some marketing with them, help to grow the company. It was starting to go down. It, it had already been well through its heyday and it was starting to decline at that stage. So I was saying, how can I help this once great company, you know, maintain or get back to where it was or keep on growing. So through that, I was afforded the opportunity to commentate and also run a $30,000 Counter-Strike tournament for a new brand that was launching into the space, which was TDE Sports. Okay. So for me, just kind of really fell into it and yeah, did a lot of, did a lot of work. Um, almost got myself fired from my um, apprenticeship that I was doing at that time or traineeship and I was doing an IT traineeship in the education department. Really? They didn't like that I was on MSN talking about uh, structuring a tournament while I was supposed to be fixing computers and updating servers and MacBooks and whatever whatever else was there at that okay. period of time. Right. And, you know, kind of pinging around these different jobs going from thermal take to, you know, doing some news editing and, um, you know, working as a sole trader for a while doing social promotions to, you know, what have you was me really trying to find my fit within the space. And it was me being hyper interested in way too many things in being really interested in building a community like around Thermal Take, launching a new brand and running esports tournaments and how do you build a uh, community around a brand by being hands-on. So I would run my own Counter-Strike tournaments, do my own talks, build my own computers to take to events, get hands-on with those things to becoming a journalist. You know, How do I understand and build? How do I write articles better? How do I interface on the opposite side? I was a PR person on one side, so how do I, as a journalist, more effectively communicate with them to get more um, stories out of them, get more scoops or get more products to review? And then with Corsair, it was kind of, you know, I was studying studying social work at university during that short period of time in the middle as well. For for Corsair, it was kind of a headhunt opportunity. It was once again to launch a new brand. You know, it was a very established brand, but they had no local employees in the space. So how can I work with a brand that's much higher positioned, whereas Thermaltake was low user trust and low cost products, where Thermaltake is the opposite. It's a US company, so it's very high quality products, a lot of money spent on R&D, also very high price, but a high trust brand. So how do you work with a brand like that to A, grow if you already own so much market share, but B, maintain versus on the other side, trying to grow something up from zero. It's a very different challenge to have. So it sounds like with the beginning of big esports, it was really a vehicle to allow you to experiment you know in a way like you you sort of sound similar to myself where you know you find a specific niche element of an industry and then next thing you know you're sort of like a magpie you're onto the the next thing which is really interesting Mm. i don't know if you find that because that's essentially what we do as a marketing agency we consult Mm. really um did you do you think that's the case? You just it allows you to do a little bit of everything that you love. Yeah, I don't like being attached to one brand. 
mm. or to one thing either, and that's what I found. No matter how, no matter how well you're looked after, you know, no matter how great your job is, like my, if you think about my job at Corsair, it was fantastic. It was the only employee in Australia. Um, my direct report was in Taiwan, who's three hours behind me. So if I really want to, I can sleep in for three hours because I'm working from home. You know, okay. getting paid a good salary, and it's for a US company, so they're covering you know most of my healthcare and stuff as well. You know, not really? having to do too much international travel at all either, which is you know can be a burden when you're doing it for work. Okay. You know, twice a year and doing a little bit of interstate travel, but determining basically the whole thing by myself. I had to justify it to my boss, obviously, but I had a certain set budget and I could decide every single market activity that I wanted to do over that period of time. Uh But for me, ultimately, it's I don't want to be stuck to someone else's brand, but also stuck to only one brand. I want to be able to pick and choose things. And because esports move so fast as well, for me here at Big, part of my pitch to, you know, partner with Jerry and Playside and such at the start was I can identify different ways to make money within the industry and easily pivot to those. So let's say, you know, if I was to run an esports tournament, I've been there as the sponsor, I've been there as the player, I've been there as a player manager, as the journalist, and I've also run those kind of tournaments too. Mm. So I have that fundamental understanding of, of, you know, I like to say I've sat on all six sides of the fence basically within esports so I can understand where to pivot and where to go to and try to find where that revenue is. So you think your time, it sounds like your time at Corsair was probably one of the most pivotal roles that you had when you really uncovered that. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Because for me always it was... This one thing that I'm hyper-focused on is the only thing that I think I'm ever going to do. And then that changes and then it changes again. You know, for me, it was, um, you know, I got accepted into Bachelor of Behavioral Science and hopefully was going to go into psychology. So that that was it for me. Like I wanted to do that. And then it was, okay, I want to be the best commentator in the world. Um, and then it pivoted to Counter-Strike. I want to be the best player in the world. Then it pivoted back to commentator. I want to start commentating again. Uh, you know, I want to be the head of marketing for Thermal Take globally to help them kind of get out of, you know, the pickle they're in, which was, you know, building user trust or, you know, I wanted to be the number one journalist in the world and do all the top reviews and be sent to drive the latest Tesla and all this kind of stuff too. So every time it's like, yeah, you've got those things. And, you know, I do a little bit of mentoring. Um, I've done a lot more in the past. I don't do so much these days. But every time, you know, I tell people that you need to, I find within this industry and because everything changes so much, having um, goals is fantastic, but don't be scared to change them. My kind of end goal has been wildly different at least 10 times. Yeah. And that was an interesting thing that you had in, um, uh, I think, yeah, it was the TT Esports um, presentation. I think one of the things you said that you wanted to make esports mainstream, I think, you, you know, you'd, you'd mm. seen events on live TV in Korea and Taiwan and how yeah. essentially it was like watching AFL or it was yeah. as, as popular as AFL. How has that goal changed for you personally? If, if you were to pick that sort of that number one archetypical goal at the moment. Yeah, I'd say that's still the same. And the other the other caveat to that would be to drive esports to be profitable within Australia and to okay. help grow the market. Ultimately, if you boil it down to where Big is at the moment, um, we're really about, yeah, generating market success and helping to grow the market. And that's been a you know, major challenge for us is we're not, you know, it's not like it's a $100 million industry in Australia and we're trying to take 5, 10, 50% of the pie to grow us. It's that the industry is small. So we're trying to grow the industry at the same time as maintaining or growing our ownership. Mm-hmm. How do you define small? Uh, as in dollar, dollar wise? Well, like, how, you know, if you, if you can, 
what are you comparing it to? Are you comparing it to Korea, the US? Yeah, or even just to other industries within Australia. Ah, okay. One of the things that, you know, I grew up in Tasmania, and one of the things that blew my mind when I moved here is if you go just to Dandenong here and you drive, there are so many stores that you would have never heard of, you'll never go in in your life. And you can see that industry, or my girlfriend, she works in lighting and lighting supply. And the amount of dollars that they push through, the amount of stores that Midis alone has, plus, you know, the three other competitors in the space, shows you that that industry that you've never heard of and you will never engage with whatsoever is so gigantic. And it's so big. And there's so many industries like that. But if you look at esports, it's not like we have, you know, 10,000 plus employees in Australia who are primarily around esports. Maybe let's get into the state of the industry. I think one of the things we spoke about earlier was comparing Mm -hmm. uh, gaming or entertainment around gaming versus esports itself. I think everyone's pretty, you know, Jerry and I spoke about Fortnite. We spoke about how Ninja, I think... Last year in 2018, he earned like $10 million or something like that. Mm. How would you describe esports globally, first of all? And then, you know, how does it compare locally? Sure. So, esports globally, a buzzword. Okay. Um, it's kind of gone from cryptocurrency to esports. <laughs> um, it's a little bit similar to the dot-com bubble, but different. So some people ask me if it's like that. The main difference is that the dot-com bubble is that there was a lot of money invested and people were building things in the middle in the hope that the users would come, if you think about the three sides. So okay. the money coming in, um, the building in the middle to connect and the users. There was a lot of things being built in the middle, a lot of money coming in, and there wasn't many users whatsoever. Uh-huh. The esports problem is that there are a lot of users. There's tens of millions of people that are playing games every single day around the world. There's a lot of money interest, but there's no efficient way to connect a lot of those a lot of the time. So Uh if you look at the average spend per user of an esports fan, it's something minuscule like 80 cents Whereas if you look at the average spend of an NBA fan, it's like $11 over what, I think it was a month or something like that period of wow. time, right? Or even if you look at the average spend at um, a tournament or something like that too, it's even flipped on its head. So when you talk to someone like the Broncos, their average fan spend at a tournament is like $3, but in esports, it's like 90 bucks or something ridiculously large Jeez. like that. So it's about understanding Where's the value proposition here? How do we actually connect these fans and what are they looking for? And that's a lot of the issue that you get globally where you'll have um, like media companies, and this isn't even just esports now. You've got media companies that are reaching hundreds of millions of monthly active uh, readers over that period of time, but they're not making any money and they're not making any profit. So how do you actually enact and and draw out some money from these people? Mm. And that's one of the main issues in the market so far. You know, you've got teams that aren't, currently profitable who like phase for example who you know according to forbes aren't cash flow positive who have sponsors like honda they've got um one of their founders or people who run it called banks with 2.5 million instagram followers himself let alone their other streamers they've got sit under them you know multiple millions of dollars altogether phase you know you could say they've probably got 25 million instagram followers across all of their players and all of their teams and such yet they're not cash flow positive as well and some of that's still the the same kind of issue that there's a lot of money coming into the space and a lot of uh, salary money being spent but people are still figuring out how to unlock those fans and the frustrating thing is we know the fans are there we know that they're turning up to tournaments, they're turning up to things, but how do you convert them properly into dollars besides the publishers, the people who make the games are the people that are really making all the money at the moment. And so this is, when you're talking about connecting people, you're talking about advertisers in a way or brands in general. 
Yeah, a lot of that is brands um, and it's how, you know, esports is going through a phase at the moment very successfully so where they're releasing merchandise, limited run, streetwear style merchandise that's selling out and things like that. And mm-hmm. But it's, I guess, if you think about what are the income streams from a traditional sports team versus an esports team, let's just use teams. So from a sports team, it's um, often 70% is from sponsorship revenue. Yeah. Whereas an esports team right now, it's something like 95% is from sponsorship revenue. Jeez. And the issue is that the what we call the non-endemic sponsors, which are brands that aren't in esports, just say, you know, Westinghouse for appliances, kitchen appliances, they're not maturing into the market as fast as people want or as fast as people have thought they are either. There's not really any broadcast deals in esports to feed that money down. And there's not many franchise leagues in esports either that are funneling that money down from the top either, that are selling the rights and selling the sponsorship and funneling that money down to their teams too. Uh So at the moment, the people that are making most of the money are the publishers, the people who produce the games themselves. And they're redistributing some of that wealth through their own tournaments. They're funding people to run tournaments for them or they're running their own in-house tournaments. But still, that's only funding a small portion of people or you know, uplifting a small portion of people to be able to run things for the publisher. Ultimately, the money's still going to the publisher. So the the bulk of the, uh, let's call it, re- like the structure of the industry seems that these publishers of games, they make money from making the games. Yeah. There's a few teams that exist, uh, and it sounds like most of the teams are quite decentralized, so there's no structured competitions. There might be competitions run by Twitch or someone out there that they have a price pool for and really it's just a way to advertise their product. Mm. And and maybe, let's say, with streamers um, who are professionals at, in their own right in teams as well, they're able to make a side hustle for people being patrons or something like yeah. that, getting some sort of inside access or whatever. Yep. So do you think that for this to go the, to the next level, it has to become more structured? Like there needs to be proper leagues in some way at a national level or how do you see that unfolding yeah look the major advantage and disadvantage of esports is there's so much going on so you've got third parties like esl or even like the global loot league or face it or maneski met events etc that are running games or tournaments quite consistently around that part so you know there's the intel extreme masters series and i think there's i think there's about six of those around the world one of those is in sydney at kudos bank arena which sees fifteen thousand to twenty thousand ticket holders come in over the weekend to watch international teams play same same arena that justin bieber performs in for example (laughs) so you know you're seeing those kind of ones which are fantastic Uh, a lot of the time however they're not necessarily funded or are helped by the publisher whatsoever so ultimately that tournament is around a game called Counter-Strike Global Offensive that's developed by Valve, Mm. which is pushing interest to the game, which is pushing people to download and play. The game's free to play. However, there's in-game purchases and such and getting people into those ecosystem, but they're not necessarily being remunerated for bringing those people in. Valve do support some major and minor tournaments with, with cash and things like that, which is fantastic, you know, towards the prize pool to make the big and a success. But yeah, I would say that I don't think that it needs to, like to go back to your question, I don't think that it needs to be totally structured i think it's okay the way that it is at the moment uh a lot of the people within esports similar to the people in cryptocurrency they don't like the structure of things they don't Mm. like the olympics they don't like traditional tv they don't like newspapers they don't like um you know news stations and channel 7 10 etc and that's come up a lot of the way from being ignored by those people over a long period of time 
And a lot of the way that I explain it is uh, esports is the opposite to virtual reality. So virtual reality, all of the companies are telling people all the time, you need to care about VR. Every gamer laptop has a sticker on it that's VR ready. Every top level graphics card has a VR ready sticker on it. All of these companies all the time are telling you, you need to care about VR, you need to care about VR. Out of all my friends I play games with, there's probably 30 of us within a community that, that play in Discord quite a lot, you know, 15 regularly. Um, one has a VR headset, and I'd probably say two others just really care about VR, even the slightest bit, and the rest people don't care whatsoever. Okay. Whereas esports has been the opposite. Like I explained before, we know that there's a lot of people there. We know that uh, a lot of people are participating in games and wanting to get better and want to be part of this ecosystem. And we've been punching up for a long time, trying to tell, you know, the people in suits to be like, care about us. We're all here. We want to we want to play games. And, you know, some of the ways that I can see that tick in people's head, I had a few meetings with um, with Matthew Guy, the, the ex-liberal um, leader here. Oh, really? And it wasn't over a lobster. Um, <laughs> But he, you know, I could see when I was explaining to him about the industry, I could see it start to tick in his head because he was saying, well, my my son plays Minecraft and then every time that his friends come over, all they want to do is play Minecraft. And every time I go to my friend's house and their kids are there, their kids are playing Minecraft. And then you can see it tick in their head that, okay, maybe a lot of people do play video games. It's not just my annoying kid that's yeah. playing video games. You can start to put A, B and C together. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of the time... Esports people have been punching up, even to the fact that, you know, back in 2012 on a StarCraft 2 forum, I saw a post of someone saying, hey, Christmas is coming up soon. Make sure you talk to everyone there about esports. You know, be the evangelize esports to them. <laughs> Maybe you've got an uncle that's high up in KPMG that can help pull some strings to make some things happen. So that's why, you know, you're seeing, uh, like we were talking about before, if you do something right in esports, people really, really get behind you. Mm. But still, people are trying to figure out that part in the middle. How do you unlock? How do you unlock grassroots tournaments? How do you get more schools into esports? How do you get it as part of government-funded programs? How do you ingrain it? Because according to all the research, the kids are already playing games all all the time. They're skipping school to play games. When they get suspended, they're happy because they can go home and play games for three days. Yeah. And all of the anecdotal and now the official research for these high school esports leagues are coming out, approving this. So the question that the high school esports leagues are asking, uh, of which I interviewed a CEO yesterday for the for my podcast, a guy called Brett Sullivan from Flactest. He's going to these teachers and saying, 81 plus percent of your kids are already playing games all the time and they'd rather do that than come to school. So what are you doing about it to integrate your schooling and gaming together. Mm-hmm. It just goes back to your point. Like, if you look at though that that th- those three elements of the relationship, the money is there mm-hmm. for people to do stuff, and the users are there. It's just having that connection point in between the two. Mm. What, what do you think are going to be the biggest points of connection? Is it tournaments? Is it creating leagues like the one you spoke about? In high school, I, I'm going to guess there's no silver bullet, but there are there like a top three things that you're eyeing off and, and trying to pitch on at the moment? Yeah, look, um, Pathways is number one. A way to get someone from Joe to Pro doesn't really exist right now. Like when I played cricket in primary school, I knew that I could play cricket in primary school to high school to local Colts league and then try to get drafted into you know a more professional league that puts me to state than international cricket. You understand that from six years old that that's the pathway. However, in esports, I came across it by accident. I found a guy in a server I was in. I used to go in the same server pretty much every day after school. He had a clan tag on because that was part of how you could set your name. And I sent him a message and said, what's it? Like, what is a clan tag? What does that mean? How are you so good? And he invited me to start talking to him over an instant messaging program called Xfire. And uh-huh. then he just explained to me that, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in a team. We train 
you know, we're competing in tournaments. And I went, wow, okay, because I was getting better at the game and I wanted to understand how to get even better and then how to test my skill against other people, not just my couple of mates that were at home, uh-huh. you know, against other people that are trying to get better as well. So it was literally just hearsay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's the way that a lot of people get into that, you know, get into that kind of market. You know, I think that's that's one of the major ones. And some of the other ones is just, uh, I guess, utilizing influences in a in a good way. You know, I made a, a LinkedIn story uh, kind of post just before a video um, because LinkedIn is, is blowing up esports right now. And people really? like myself, I got 80 connection requests today, like 99 last Saturday. Um, they're really focusing on that kind of market at the moment. And, you know, what I was talking to people about in there is that find yourselves influences that can convert and then hold on to them as mm-hmm. strongly as you can um, because their their influence over their fans is is massive and right now you know a lot of our play is to work with influencers and to make revenue as a startup as a business while esports matures over that period of time and while some very smart people are working on some ways to better activate their fans mm-hmm. and while we start to build more case studies and to prove more things and then the third part really i think and this is our standard pitch, is bums on seats and proving to companies that these people are real, that they exist. So we work a lot with the fighting games community, which are kind of the blanket term for anything like Street Fighter or Tekken or Smash Brothers, people that fight against each other, because these this community is very used to grassroots, so they don't expect a big, flashy professional tournament. They're happy with just a couple of monitors on a trestle table they'll play. As long as they've got an experience, they're loud, they're happy, but also they'll turn up to things in person all the time. Yeah. Even if the prize pool is a couple hundred bucks and they have to pay 10 bucks to enter, they're in because they're meeting up with mates, they're in person, they're having fun, they're getting loud, they're Uh engaging with things too. So figuring out more ways to bring these brands into the space by showing them these people are real. So we did an event at Burger Love in South Melbourne here where, you know, it was virtually zero budget. We got 88 people to pack out their store uh, with virtually no marketing and they were hanging out down the street. You know, we could only fit about 25 people in the store Jeez. at any one time. So people were hanging out outside in the sun, like having a good time. They bought two and a half grand worth of milkshakes plus burgers, etc. you know, just over a four-hour tournament period because they're happy to turn up in person. And the the grand prize was 250 bucks cash. Wow. First place prize was 125 of that. That's amazing. So it, it is really about... Okay, so there's three hours that areas events, influence slash advertising, mm. and uh, coming up with ways or systems to encourage like an academy type process. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now, one thing we we didn't actually cover earlier, but we spoke off camera about was the differences in games. So, I think one thing that people think about is that. Mm. Uh, someone like a ninja on Twitch is an esports player. Mm-hmm. So maybe just distinguish the difference between what is gaming and entertainment versus uh, esports, mm-hmm. specific to the games that people are playing at the moment. Sure. So there's a distinction between gaming and esports. You can use a, a sport analogy. So gaming is a social activity that you compete in or you complete by yourself or with friends and it's a non-competitive environment. Mm -hmm. So it could be like kicking a footy down at the beach with your mates. Sometimes you might have a marks competition where someone's trying to mark the ball over other people, but ultimately it's for fun and it's for engaging. Whereas eSports is more of a competitive and structured um, facility where you're trying, you have a goal, which is either to get better 
or to win a tournament. Mm -hmm. So whether you're training by yourself, you're training your muscle memory or you're learning um, more about the map or the way the game works, or whether you're even competing in a Thursday night A-grade league with your friends as part of your university or whatever else in volleyball, it's very similar to what esports would be. Mm -hmm. So someone like Ninja is more of a streamer and entertainer. Yeah. And, that, and that's that's the key thing that, that people need to, to get to understand. And so mm. when you're watching esports on YouTube, and this is the way I've tried to distinguish it with people, is that typically someone like a ninja or like a courage on Fortnite, it's literally just them playing in front of the screen, whereas on esports it is, you know, it's like, f as you said, five guys playing Counter-Strike, mm. sitting on a stage, and there's like proper commentators that are there. It's yeah. very, very, very different. Yeah, and um, they Fortnite blurs the lines a lot because Ninja will play in tournaments now, but it's not his goal yeah. to be an esports professional. It's Fortnite blurring the lines between influencers gaming and esports where they're so big that they don't care about competitive esports. They're, there's a lot of arguments inside the scene that Fortnite isn't an esport. It's not a pure kind of esports title. It's not a team versus team. There's, you know, 30, 20, there's 20 teams of people that are playing at the same time. You know, it, it creates a lot of randomness and, and issues with, with that kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's it's what the fans like. So while it's not a core esport and while people like Ninja aren't, you know, an, an esports professional, if he's going to come to a tournament, he's going to bring 10,000 people to watch. So who cares? And th you said this to me as well off camera about um, this element of uh, being fixed inside the game. So mm. maybe just run through that for people and how the analogy to AFL might work. Sure. So another thing that, that makes a game in eSport is a limited and controlled amount of randomness. So using a game like Dota 2, for example, which I play a lot, which is a top-down five versus five, they call it a multi-online battle arena, a MOBA game. You can get an item in that game that will enable 17% of the time I will mini-stun an opponent. Mm -hmm. So that is an amount of randomness because a mini-stun will happen. However, you can account for that because you as the enemy can see that I've got that item. You can click on me and see it and you can account for that might be a possibility. However, you know, too much randomness, let's say you're playing AFL, for example, let's say that every five minutes within AFL, the ball will change to one of, it could be eight balls, you don't know what it is. And any game, it could be different. So you could be Richmond versus Essendon, and you could be playing after five minutes, it turns into a cricket ball, and it just so happens that... Richmond is so much better with a cricket ball than you are and you didn't expect that to happen. However, your next game with them, it could turn into a soccer ball after five minutes and you're much better with a soccer ball or you don't know. You know, it'd be pretty hard to kick a cricket ball around, I think. But okay. that's too much uncontrolled randomness. Yeah, and so that having the controlled element or that fixed element allows people to strategize, which is what makes it yeah. essentially a strategic game or sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where, you know, that's why some people say they don't like the building as much in Fortnite because it's not as controllable. Or um, with a game like Bad Com Battlefield Bad Company 2, which I played, which wasn't a great eSport, part of their issue was every single building was destructible. So you can't build uh. a set strategy around a building. Some people... and. I think rightfully in their own mind say, well, that's good because it, it makes it more challenging over that period of time. But once again, it goes back to that thing. If you're coming up and the building simply doesn't exist, it's kind of like playing AFL and then out of nowhere, you've just got to take your midfielder off the field and they're like, well, it's just part of the fun. Now you don't have a midfielder. Now you've just got to try something different. Like it's not, there's, it's not controlled. You, you can't just change the rules like that. Yeah. It's a good, it's a really good analogy. I think it really explains what this industry is because, you know, so many people get confused as to what it is all the time. I mean, even myself, yeah. until you explain that to me, I Can't thought 
I thought, uh, you know, Fortnite was uh, part of the esports space. Yeah. Well, it definitely is, but it's, yeah, it's it's an anomaly. It's different. And while, you know, some kind of esports purists don't agree with it, ultimately I say, well, who cares? There's so many millions of people playing it. There's so many millions of dollars of prize pool. They can be, they can be what they want, ultimately. If they're yeah. making all the money and they're bringing in the fans, that's what the fans want. Now, before we get into big esports, the business, and mm. what your principles are there, um, the thing you mentioned before about influencers. Now, sure. this is super interesting. How you founded Shade Crew? Yeah. Did you do that alongside with um, Jerry and the Playside guys as yes. well? Okay. Yeah. So essentially, it's like a it's like a house. It's mm. sort of like um, it sort of seems like Melbourne Team Tem, but not assholes. <laughs> and uh, and there's like a strong element of gaming there. Mm. Um, where did the idea come about? Why why create shade? I guess in in the first place. So so the the concept, and I'd, I'd like to really kind of reiterate on the concept of this um, because okay. I think it can be replicated by different people in different markets on on different levels. Um, the concept really was a lot of traditional people or every everyone these days is playing games, right? So okay. if you go to a regular AFL match and you look around everyone within the audience, most of those people are playing games on some sort of level. They've played or, or are currently playing FIFA or NBA 2K or Fortnite or things like that. So you're seeing start you're starting to see these kind of things be unearthed where um, Nadal will play 12 hours of FIFA leading up to a tournament because he wants to rest and relax and hit that's one that's his first request for his hotel room when he comes to the Oz Open. <laughs> you're seeing people like Nick Kyrgios has streamed um, dozens of hours of Call of Duty on Twitch. Um, as part of Sh- as part of Shade Crew we had Jackson Warren playing with his dad Shane Warren yeah, across three different days. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah, so Really, it's it's about bringing that out, but also it's about another way of onboarding new brands into the space. So if you're working with traditional talent and traditional influencers, you approach a brand, they're used to working with these people and it's less scary. If you come to them and say, hey, I'd like you to get into esports, first they say, okay, what the hell is esports? And then you say, well, here's someone shooting someone else in the head. And they go, no, thank you. That's that's not what I'm interested in. Goodbye. Okay. So it's very daunting and the market is fragmented and can be hard for them to understand. But if you go to them with a pitch and you say, hey, I've got Shane Warne. They go, I know him. Seen him on TV. Or I've worked with him before. Well, we're using Shane Warne, but instead of just looking cool on camera with his advanced hair... <laughs> he's playing a game on a screen. And they go, well, I don't really know much about that thing on the screen, but I know about Shane Warne, so I'm in. And then they become educated over that period of time and it's easier to get them into the market. Mm. The opposite way is that the brands that are in the space, especially the peripheral brands that are making keyboards, mouse, mousepad headsets, they've capped out their market and they're waiting for their hardcore market to grow. So they're looking at new opportunities. And for them, the new opportunities are the casual gamers, the people that don't understand um, and aren't heavily invested already into purchasing these type of items that can be influenced to purchase these ones. So you'll, if you look at a person like Mitch Orville from Shade Crew, he sits on both sides of the fence. He's got Angry Dad, which is mainstream, 1.2 million likes on Facebook. He's done plenty of, you know, kind of modelling type Instagram things, you know, teeth whitening and barber shops and cafes, etc. So he's got that side of stuff, but he plays Fortnite every single day. So then it's easy to say, okay, you're getting Mitch with a cafe, but the cafe is getting Mitch for Fortnite instead of just posting on Instagram. So it's more engaging. And then you're also getting Razor or Corsair on the other side to say, hey, you're using Mitch because he's relevant to the gaming market. He's relevant to the mass audience, but he's also playing games to promote those products. And the the structure of the house, how does it work? Like are they... 
because I know some some of them are away at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mitch just had a kid like the other day or so. His brother did. Oh, Dylan. sorry, his yeah. brother did. Yeah, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan Norwood yeah. did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, it seems like um, you know some people are away at the moment. How do you sort of structure it? Is it like a rented house? Do they live there? What's sort of the deal with all that? Yeah, so there's a few different ways that these gaming houses work. So okay. sometimes if you think about the esports side of thing, there'll be an esports gaming house that's almost like a training facility. So while the season is on, the players will fly in, they will compete, but they'll also live out of this house and they'll train within the house. They'll have their coach and their manager will live with them over that period of time as well. Sometimes permanently, sometimes just for the season, they go home for the off season, depending on how it's structured. Mm-hmm. Other content creator houses, like there's the Misfits here in Melbourne, and there's also the Click Crew in Sydney, they're living there full time. So they're actually tenants of the house. They're living there creating content because if you're a Twitch streamer, often you're streamed out of your bedroom. So it's easy. Um, You don't need any extra facilities. You just need good enough internet and computers to be able to function in that space. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like the shade model, it's more like a clubhouse. So we have people that are staying there sometimes permanently, sometimes semi-permanently, and people are coming and going from time to time as well. Okay. And um, is there anything big coming up in the next uh, six months or so? Uh, quite possibly. Yeah, not <laughs> too much. Look, we're, we're kind of redefining our strategy with Shade right now. Yeah. Looking at, um, you know, how we're working with our talent, looking at our facility and doing a, you know, kind of a business revamp really over that period of time. Because okay. you have that, as with any startup, you have that launch period and then you've got that first three months where it's kind of a sink or swim. And then after that, you say, okay, let's go back and let's measure our success over those three months. Mm -hmm. Do we want to scale up? Do we want to scale down? Do we want to continue on the motion? What's worked? What hasn't worked? So we're going through that period right now. Okay. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what's going on. It's it's got a lot of potential, Mm. I think. Um, And I remember laughing. There was all sorts of random shit that you guys were doing. Like I think when you, um, what was it? You're playing cricket against Shane Warne. Yes. That was quite funny. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm reiterating Shane Warne, but yeah. that that him playing Fortnite with Jackson was seriously one of the funniest fucking good. things ever. He got one kill, so yeah, he's he on did. the board. He did well. He did well. It's just more like the. It's just all about the commentary, is it? Yeah, like he's entertaining. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense. Um. All right. So so with big esports itself, mm. if you were to break up your day over a typical year. Where would you assign the percentages of your time? Like, as an example, would 50% be going towards brands who are trying to enter the industry and 20% on things like shade and 20% on, I don't know, random calls for an influencer of some kind? What does sort of your day-to-day look like at the moment? It, it changes a lot. And yeah. like I was saying before with this industry, it's constant pivots all the time. Okay. And it's constantly looking at, you know, what problem you're trying to solve and where you're pitching yourself and whether you're, you know, as a startup trying to get that recurring revenue to happen or whether you're trying to work on these future projects. So for us right now where we're sitting, you know, we're about eight eight or nine months, I think, in as a total. For us, it's still working on maintaining or building those relationships to get that recurring revenue to happen, which then builds your base to be able to scale from then. So we've got quite a few projects that we're working on in the back end that we think are perfectly scalable assets. But you could almost think that we're functioning similarly to a PR agency at the moment where we're getting some of these companies on board. We're helping to build their strategy or facilitate their marketing for them as a fee-for-service type product to ensure that we're stable as a startup and we've got that monthly recurring revenue coming in Mm. while we build on some things that will be scaling over time. Interesting. 
Hmm. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what happens with that. It's a, it's a tough one because you sort of, you've got to, like you said, work out that recurring revenue. So you've got to try and find, you have projects, but you have, it's good to have people on retainer. It's mm. always nice. Yeah. Um, we've only just started learning that process at the moment because a lot of what we've done as an agency has been FIFA projects. But, mm. you know, a lot of the time people just keep coming back and back. So you've got to sort of, Work that out, get them on retainer, and then that just gives you time to sit back and re- and not relax, but just be a lot more strategic. Correct. You're a little bit less frenetic as part of the process. Yeah, and I think that's pretty much the same with any startup, right? Yeah. You're trying to make that first big sale or those first few sales to increase your runway to a period of time that's comfortable for you to innovate. Oh. Because ultimately, every company has a runway, really. You know, every especially ones that are project-based. No matter how big you are, even if you've got 10,000 employees, if you look at the current contracts you have and then take into mind, let's just do a thought exercise that all 300 contracts we have are finished. How much money do we have in the bank? We've got 10,000 employees. You know, how long does that last for? Ultimately, that is, that is a form of runway. Yeah. So you're trying to extend that runway to a point where it's way off in the fog. You don't have to worry about it as much that you can start to innovate and build things to scale. Yeah. And that's something I've learned from Jerry when I speak to him about that stuff. You know, he, he often talks about runway. Mm. I remember he spoke about that in the interview as well. I'm curious, like he, he was one of the, I think he and, so the, I think the founders, it's Playside, not just Cherry. Mm. Um, and it was Joe, right? Joe Hashem um, invested in the business with you. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from Jerry? And you're based out of the, the Playside office Correct. as well. Yeah, we have a section in the Playside office where okay. we're based out of. With those guys, yeah, I think it's that realistic look at the runway and how you're selling things in the short term to be able to build that kind of legacy and that that lasting business in the long term. Mm. And there's ultimately, you can think about it like a mini incubator or such. You know, what really came to light to me interviewing Brett for my podcast yesterday and, and what I've been reflecting on a lot as a startup founder is there are so many things you don't know <laughs> that it's easy to have someone in the office like Jerry or I work a lot with their COO, TJ, who was employee number six or thereabouts for them. I work and he's a director of Big Esports, so I work quite closely with TJ. Yeah. But being having someone on tap to ask those kind of business questions that you don't understand. And that you know, that's that's kind of what's happening in the whole gaming audience. A lot of the time when I work with an influencer, I have to teach them how to get an ABN. They've never done that before. Oh, really? They don't know how to send an invoice. I have to give them an invoice template. You know, I had this with, with quite a large one I've worked with recently. He's like, I've never sent an invoice before. So I had to send him an invoice template to send to me. He had an ABN, thankfully, wow. but he didn't know how to send an invoice. Have, have you been doing much like influencer management? Yeah. In this space at all? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. And that's okay. part of where Shade is. Look, I think right now... Um, The influencers, besides the publishers, the influencers are the ones that are making a lot of money. People Mm -hmm. like Ninja, you know, people like Tafui, who's making easily a million dollars a month, if not more. Um, You know, some of these people are making $70,000 a month from donations alone, from their fan audience or subscriptions and donations, um, money coming from their fans, let alone sponsorship, ad revenue, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of the pitch for me and a lot of what I'm trying to push people towards in esports is is using influencers that can convert and using these effective influencers to help push the market to grow, but also to sustain yourself as a business while esports grows over that period of time and while we mm. figure out how to better unlock that fan audience. You'd really enjoy, I know it's a bit left field for your podcast and it is focused on esports. Even if you were to meet with her and we were to link you guys up, but Genevieve Day, she runs Day mm. Management, which is sort of uh, probably the most professional influencer management firm here in Australia. Okay. And she might manages the the majority of those big influencers here that aren't managing themselves. Okay. 
Um, she's she's very smart when it comes to this. And although they've, you know, it's it's clearly that she she has people that are in like fashion and makeup and stuff like that. Mm. There's definitely principles that can be applied to this esports space mm. and brands that would consider working with them as well. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and like I was saying before, the influencer thing—it's very similar. It's still—it's the same platform a lot of the time. It's still YouTube, mm. it's still Instagram, it's still Twitter, it's still Facebook. It's just they're talking about something slightly different. Yeah. And I'd love that you mentioned makeup YouTubers and influencers because they're for me the absolute best out of any influencer market whatsoever in monetizing their audience, in you know converting things into dollars. There are if you, if you can even take the vanity metric and look at how many makeup YouTubers are on a hundred thousand subscribers that own a house and a luxury car, a ridiculous amount. If you yeah. look at that within political landscape, if you look at that within gaming and esports, 100,000 subscribers on YouTube won't get you much whatsoever. Yeah. It might get you $35,000 a year or something like that. However, the makeup um, the makeup people in the industry that they function within, granted it is a high profit margin industry, which helps, they are just so much more enterprising in the way they do things. And I love a lot of the time tuning into my girlfriend when she watches them because you can see the ways that they're monetizing their audience, the ways that they're co-branding and developing products, the ways they're always doing live meetups at Sephora and, and paid you know yeah. engagements going on um, brand junkets all the time over to Bali and brands funded that you know to gain that uh, exposure back from them creating videos, etc. Yeah, there's so much more enterprising than pretty much any other industry I've seen, but you know, maybe fashion probably come in second. Yeah, I think they're they're very um, outgoing, and I think it, it, there's also like an element of the nature of makeup. But I also think because it's slightly, it's not like ASMR, but it's like there's an entertaining element for people watching people do makeup. Yeah, like it's both educational and entertaining. Yeah, I agree. Where I think gaming has that as well. If you're into esports, like it's both educational and you know like fun yeah so I, I definitely think there's a lot to learn there i think she she's really smart at, at, at the way she pitches deals she's so savvy with that um now thinking about the podcast itself you've mentioned that a few times mm. doing that i mean it put you on the map for me that's how i learn about you guys i think um he was very, very... Ha- Your interview with Jerry was actually super handy for my own research for, <laughs> for his podcast. Um, what have you learnt about creating the podcast in this field? A lot. Look, the, the podcast for us functions as a way for A, me, t- me to maintain relevance within the industry, mm. B, for me to reach new people, um, C, you could say to educate the audience, and, and D, to generate leads for us as a business. So there's kind of three typecasts of people that often listen to our podcast. One are influential people outside of esports that listen to us to gather information about the industry. B is the, or the second is the people who are looking for their first opportunity in esports that are listening to us. And then the last portion of people are those who are working in the industry that are looking to scale up or looking to gain more information and, mm. and work more. So for us, it's been great to meet new people and to talk with new people. I think as far as the business goes of creating a podcast, moving from monthly or even quarterly at one stage to weekly was a great decision and the listeners and the amount of listens definitely come with that and that's something that I've heard in the past from the Entrepreneur on Fire guy and and, um, 
uh, Amy, and I can't remember her last name, and some others that kind of work in that lead generation podcast business. Uh-huh. Their ultimate advice is try to increase the frequency. Um, yeah, so it's been a it's been a great experience, and I've also been able to learn a lot out of it. I've been able to talk to people who are very senior within the industry who have a lot more experience than me, and you know, a lot of the time it's me learning on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, it's it's definitely multifaceted. I think in the last. So you're at like 40-ish episodes now. I think I was looking mm. at you at 41. Yeah, I think I think I just did 45 yesterday. Ah, but okay. the numbers escape me. It's some, somewhere around yeah. the 40s. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think once you hit about like 80 to 100 episodes, you start to realize the network effect. Um, there's the obvious thing like downloads, but it's when people are constantly hitting you up. Mm. And you know that they know all these things about you, and they they they've bought into what you're doing. Mm. That is is just invaluable, and it's hard, you know, because we pitch a lot of clients on doing podcasts, and it's hard to tell them like you know you've got to stick with this for like four or five seasons. Yeah. Um. But it it is invaluable. The the like you were saying before with LinkedIn, publishing it as well on LinkedIn has become if you're in that sort of B two B space, it's it's amazing. To yeah. see what it can do. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, just back on the point of of influencers or advertising, you know, you've spoken before about, or we spoke in the kitchen about brands that are endemic, so like a Red Bull or a Corsair, mm. are, are highly relevant to the industry. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the the brands that may not be as strongly connected, but have the potential to sort of move into this space as a niche for millennials? Sure. I think, well, A, it's it's anyone that's looking for that 18 to 24-year-old market that used to be engaged in sports but aren't, according to the research now. You know, the average golf fan, I think it is 55 years old. You know, the average AFL fan is getting older into its 30s and, and with so many other sports are similar as well. So if you're looking to reach that younger market, that's great. But specific kind of sections of the market, automotive has been the latest player into the space. So fast-moving consumer goods, um, you know, everything from Tostinos or Totinos who do like frozen pizza, you know, they're in in the US, to Coca-Cola, to Red Bull, uh, Dr. Pepper, and some alcohol brands are coming in now too, you know, Doritos and Mountain Dew, etc. Cars were one of the most recent ones. So we had um, Audi was kind of the first one really in with an esports team, um, that were over in the Nordics. And then after that, we saw a massive catalyst. So now we've got Toyota, Mercedes, BMW, Honda are all in in a big way. Yes, yes. I remember learning this recently because um, I was looking up uh, Schumacher's son because I'm a bit of an F1 fan. Yeah, okay. And I came across all the different teams and then I looked into the teams. And I'm like, wow, like Audi has – because they're talking about who's going to take over the Williams license because Williams is no good in okay. F1. And everyone's talking about Audi. And then I noticed, like, wow, like Audi, did you say Mercedes and I think yep. Ferrari? They all have esports teams. Yeah. So it's, and, yeah. and Adelaide as well. They, didn't they just start an esports team? Yeah. So in 2016, I think it was Adelaide purchased an esports team called Legacy. Okay. Yeah. And they've kind of encapsulated in there. And then as far as Australia goes, the Brisbane Broncos just announced their first foray into esports. They're doing some Fortnite tournaments. Uh-huh. The Essendon Bombers in the AFL, they own a League of Legends team. Right. And also the New Zealand Warriors. Overseas in New Zealand, they own a team, and also the Sky City Breakers, the NBL team over in New Zealand, they also own an esports team. Have you spoken to many of those organisations yet, or do you think yep. like someone like an Essendon is just really far ahead? Yeah, and no, I've spoken to them a lot. Yeah, it's really interesting to see why they got involved in that space and to drill down into understanding. So most, you know, most of the 
people will ask me from outside the industry, you know, why? Why would Essen buy an esports team? They're playing footy. And there's a few answers to that. Number one could be selling more memberships. So the Essendon Bombers, they purchased the team called Abyss and renamed them to Bombers, and they function in one game, which is League of Legends. So you could say that selling a membership for the League of Legends team also nets you a membership for the AFL team. Uh-huh. It increases brand recognition in a new market, and it increases brand recognition with a younger audience who aren't currently participating in the AFL, according to the research. So that could be a play. What could be a play for the Adelaide Crows is they purchased a team called Legacy, but they remained being called Legacy. So what you could argue there is that could be a play to sell more memberships through referral of the companies being involved in each other. It could be a new revenue play. It could be trying to bring in new brands or even to upsell the current brands that they're working with to pay more, um, which they have done across both the teams. They've done that too. Or it could be a capital play where they could be building up the team. They could sell it in five years and turn a profit. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting because I breakfast in Kilda. Um, I cannot see them starting. Uh, we can't even get a AFL women's team yet, let alone an esports team. Yeah. But I can see a future, you know, like you think about um, God, uh, Ready Player One, that movie that came yeah. out recently. And you look at the world, you know, like I know you're not big on VR, but you can sort of see, and, and Jerry and I spoke about this, like AR and how games are becoming more and more permeated in the world that we live in. Yeah. Like, as you're saying, less kids play sport than they... Or or are playing less sport than they do esports. Yeah. Um, in comparison to decades gone by. So, mm-hmm. you can see how to remain relevant, these sort of sporting organisations have to expand to this era. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, exactly. And I think... If you're looking in schools, one of the questions I always ask is it sport versus esports? And they generally say no, it's they're supplementary. You can participate in both at the same time. I guess the same way a lot of the time it's not necessarily AFL versus soccer. You know, they're they're two different sports that attract two different types of people. Yeah. All right. I'm looking at the time. I think we've got to jump into some short, fast questions. Sure. Uh, what does your morning routine look like? Morning routine, uh, currently, because there's a lot of work going on, it's lazier than I'd like to be. Okay. Um, but generally, you know, up by about 6, 6.30, yeah, take the dog for a quick stroll mm-hmm. and then, yeah, straight off into work. I usually eat breakfast at work. So, okay. yeah, try to get out the door pretty fast. And evening routine, what does that look like? How do you decompress? Evening routine is A, no phones. It's been something that I've been trying to push. Definitely no scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or anything like that whatsoever. Okay. And it's generally try to just lay in bed and, and talk with the girlfriend for a little bit and just collect my thoughts what's going to happen for the next day. Yeah. I've um I've started this thing recently where I've completely removed my phone, not even from the office and not even from... The bedroom is just downstairs in a place that's away. And I found that Mm. the less time you spend on your phone, the better off you are with procrastinating, Mm. you know, mental clarity, everything. And I mean, it's it's sort of obvious with, you know, you read books like Deep Work and that stuff is obvious. But until you really integrate it, it's very, very hard. Yeah, I agree. very, very hard. It was a news resolution of mine last year to not read public comments on Facebook and Twitter and things like that, which has gone quite well. And then this year, it's really not to scroll. (laughs) Not to scroll. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. What's in the fridge at home? What's in the fridge at home? Well, girlfriend and I are both vegetarian, so there's a bit of tofu, um, 
there's quite a few prepackaged meals. Try to prepackage as much as I can to purchase less. Okay. And a lot of sauces. My girlfriend's a big fan of condiments, so there's 30 different types of mayonnaise. It feels like. Jesus. And, uh, not 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 seriously, but there's probably four different types yeah. of mayonnaise. I can I can see that. My my <laughs> sister's vegetarian, so um I can see, you know, lots of different sauces and whatnot to give it uh to give it that kick. Yes. Um, best purchase under two hundred dollars. Best purchase under two hundred dollars. That's a really good question. Mm. Like I think I'm quite, you know, I've gone through the minimalism phase, I guess, pretty recently. And that was part of our emails leading up to this. Yeah. You asked if I could maybe not wear a black shirt. And I said, I literally only wear black shirts. <laughs> um, I would say best purchase under $200 would be a pair of NMDs, Adidas NMDs. Okay. So I purchased those originally in the US. I was over there for work to resell in Australia. That's when they were rare here and, you know, worth a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And they were so comfortable that I uh, bought another pair secondhand and they've lasted me three years, those two pairs of shoes. They're super comfortable. They're fantastic. And they're stylish enough to wear over that period of time. When did you come to the decision to, like your wardrobe, is it literally the same pairs of pants and shirts and that's it? Pretty much. I've got I've got probably eight pairs of, or eight black shirts. And then I've got uh, two different pairs of black jeans. One's a little bit skinnier than the other pair. And then besides that, you know, I've got some, like I do jujitsu. So I've got a couple of, I've got a gi and I've got a couple of rash guards and, you know, two different pairs of black shorts and such. But it's pretty streamlined. There's a few kind of dress up shirts and suit and stuff that I still have that I wear. But pretty much every single day I'm I'm wearing a black shirt, black jeans, you know, the same watch and one or two pairs of NMDs every time. Okay. Where do you do BJJ? I do it uh, at Noble Park. Under, oh, really? Yeah, under Marcel. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I, I went to Absolute MMA. I was there for a while, but oh, I yeah. felt it's like um, it's pretty good. But I just felt like um, uh, th- there was there's so much going on there. I wanted I want to find just a BJJ. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, practice. Yep. So, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Um, it's tough at the moment because we're looking at moving down to the Bayside in the next year. So I'm trying to. St- you know, strategically pick a pay- place that's not going to be a pain in the ass come the next year. Yeah, okay. Uh, I know there's one in South Melbourne, but um, it's definitely getting more and more popular, isn't it? Oh, it's super. Yeah, super is. And part of that's due to Joe Rogan. You know, part yeah. of that's due to Jocko Willink, who I yeah. listened to previously quite a lot, not so much these days, you know, being an evangelist. And he's the reason that I started doing jiu-jitsu really? through Jocko. So, yeah. He's amazing. Mm. Uh, the UFC as well. Yes. I think that that is really made it popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but and both ways, right? Like jiu-jitsu made the UFC popular and UFC has made the jiu-jitsu even more popular. Exactly. Um all right, last question for you. If you had to gift one book to the audience for Christmas this year mm-hmm. or an audiobook, what would it be and why? Probably uh say the standard of how to win friends and influence people. Uh-huh. And I think Partly because a lot of the lessons it taught me, I don't remember what they are, but I remember them being profound in the fact that um, it's an interesting conversation I have with my girlfriend sometimes when she'll tell me something that's happening with her or her family and I simply don't remember. And it's because as a startup founder, you've got so many things going on all the time. You've got information coming to your head and <laughs> I feel like you push out these thoughts quite a lot. For example, birthdays. I'm terrible. I don't remember my mum's birthday, my dad's or my girlfriend's birthday. <laughs> and I also don't remember how old I am without... Um, 
with without I can remember my birthday, but often have to open up the calculator. And it makes me sound like I have um, some sort of condition, but I can <laughs> I can promise you I don't think I do. Yeah. But for me, it's it's about I guess funneling through that information and, and how can you put it into your day to day and the way you do things, and then not have to think about it from then on. Mm. One thing I do remember from that is researching the people that you're talking to before you go to find some common ground. Huh. And the example I think they used in the book was um, about someone was trying to get a politician on their side. They found out the politician loved boats. So they researched a whole bunch about boats and they went there and they talked about that all the time. Politicians thought they were great and this person's never been on a boat in their life. Wow. So it's about understanding the commonality, the common ground. And what I tell to people, that even happens in marketing. If you're going to pitch Mercedes for marketing and you notice that Mercedes have worked with a whole bunch of influencers and they've never done anything on TV, you can go there, especially if you've got influencers to sell to them. You can say, hey, I've got a similar product to what you're already doing. You know, let's let's work together because A, people like their own ideas and B, people probably have a global marketing plan that they're trying mm. to follow or an overarching marketing plan at the same time. That book is brilliant. Um, it actually, I think I'm reading at the moment, um, The Art of Thinking Clearly. clearly and mm. what you just spoke about just reminds me of the liking bias. But there was another cognitive bias that Benjamin Franklin used to speak about a lot where you would ask a favor of someone that you wanted to like you. And I think his example mm. was there was a, a of something very specific that they like. So he knew a guy who he wanted to become friends with, but he, you know, the guy apparently hated him. And he asked to borrow this really nice book of his, like a really rare book about a specific topic. Mm. And the guy was like taken aback. He gave it to him. And from that moment onwards, they were very, very good friends. And there's yeah, a, right. it's it's sort of the, the, the indirect process of asking for a gift yeah. that makes people like you in some way. And there was a... I've forgotten the name of the bias, but it was on Dan Monheit, who we've had on the show. He did a whole episode about it on um, not real big things, but um, his podcast had just blanked on the name. Anyway, we'll, we'll link it. It was a fascinating episode, and I love that sort of shit. Yeah. Just learning about human psychology is, is super fascinating. Yeah, and the interesting thing for me really was moving, I guess, from Audible mainly to podcasts. So I used to listen to books quite a lot. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink also fantastic, you know, and his other books too. Um, you know, uh, and you know how to you know how to stop worrying and you know all these kind of books that have been uh, how to stop worrying and start living, yeah? yeah. Yeah, yeah. And these kind of books are fantastic. But for me I ended up, you know, pushing towards podcasts a lot. And it was the Jocko podcast that really got me into it. But I think I started listening when he was at like episode um, probably like 220 or something like that. Oh, and really? I went from number one, chucked on a 1.5 times speed and every day driving to and from work, any opportunity I got in my ears listening throughout that period of time. Wow. And I got so much transfer of knowledge over that period of time that it's really converted me to, do I want to listen to a book or do I want to listen to an experienced person who's doing something I'd like to do, telling me that over and over again? And it's been really interesting thought it's a, experience. It's a good point. Because like the we used to or we do read books to gain gain information from people who have the experience, but now with podcasts, it is so much more relevant to this day mm. that you can you can sit there and listen to that and gather that information. I could I can totally see that. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, that and um, you know, the startup podcast by Gimlet Media and the Pitch by Gimlet Media as well. Yeah. Kind of those three podcasts have been the yeah the absolute that, greatest. That's thing. one of the original series. The mm. start startup by Gimlet is an amazing series. Yes, I've, I, I listened to that thing back to front in like three days. Yeah, easily. Yeah, I can't remember how many seasons they had, but it's just such an easy A lot. listen. And it's still going. Have you heard of Naval? 
Naval's series. Um, he's amazing, that guy. He Look up Naval on Joe Rogan's podcast. It'll okay. be one of the best episodes you ever listen to. After that, you go listen to his podcast, and they're literally like one-minute episodes. Yeah, okay. Um, and they're just- Oh, I have. Yeah, that's right. And I realized I followed him- already on Twitter without understanding who he was. Yeah. Because I followed him on Twitter and I was like, these tweets are interesting, but who is, is this a person? Is this a company? Yeah. Like, is this a yeah. Su- is this a pseudonym? Who is this yeah. individual? Because he doesn't have photos of himself. Yeah. Yeah. He's an amazing yeah, it's that guy. that weird faceless display photo. It looks kind of like a mannequin-esque. It does. Of, yeah. yeah. But yeah. he he's, I, I swear, his episode on Joe Rogan would have been one of the best, What would easily be top three episodes. Yeah. It just the guy is a fountain of knowledge and it's yep. unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. That and the Area 51 episode. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Lazar. Yes. Oh, fuck. Yeah. All right, Chris, where can people find you on the interwebs? Sure. So, website, bigesports.gg. Okay. Um, or you can follow me at Smithy Mayo on pretty much any platform across okay. LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend people go follow you on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And I think Twitter is where uh, is pretty big in the esports space. Yeah, it's where LinkedIn's most of handy. the gamers hang out. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Twitter's the greatest for that. And and if more for the business side, LinkedIn definitely go check that out. I think you've sh- shared yep. some things there. But um, look, thanks for coming in, mate. All right, thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for making it to the end. Before you run off, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode, or do leave us a rating. For Instagram, go follow us on at uncommon underscore podcast. For YouTube, search uncommon podcast and don't forget to subscribe if you're watching this video. Also, give us a like or leave a comment on what you thought about the episode. But until next time, thanks so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Are you an entrepreneur or marketer who needs help making podcasts, video, or animation? Perhaps you don't have time to manage a freelancer or the budget to deal with an agency. Well, Neural Media can help you with simple and affordable content creation, saving you time and money by taking away the pain of producing that content. To learn more, head to neural.com slash media. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash media, play around with our pricing or request a callback directly. Listeners to the show receive a special discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON.